0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 116 of the Citrix Session. I'm your host, Andy Whiteside. I've got uh, Bill Sutton, the Director of Delivery Services here at Zintegra. Bill, if I'm not uh, mistaken, in our management meeting a few minutes ago, you reported that you guys had 115% utilization last week? Was that the week Uh, week before last? Yes. Okay, so there's no such thing as giving 110%, right? (laughs) <laughs> but I guess well, when you're your consulting hours work,
1: a week, that's over a hundred percent, right? If you consider 40 the floor,
0: when you're, uh, when you're consultants 40. for project rollouts have to work nights and weekends during a week, I guess you can, you can do more than the whole. You can. Yeah. Good, good problem to have. Um, now why are you guys so busy?
1: Well, um, selling a lot of projects, a lot of, uh, migrations off of 715. um, uh, believe it or not. Uh, that's a lot of the work that we're doing. Um, internally, uh, as well as a lot of customers are really um, trending towards leveraging Igel. We've got a couple of other really big Igel projects that are rolling out UMS and ICG and other uh, Igel technologies to uh, to optimize the endpoint that accesses a Citrix or VMware environment. Interesting I environment, I should say.
0: Scanning through the blog for today, uh, I saw a lot of comments around Linux. IGEL is really just Linux for the endpoint, but that, that story has <clears> been around for a long time. I guess people are just starting to really understand the, uh, I don't need Windows for my endpoints to connect the Windows in the data center or cloud conversation.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that goes back to you know the the pandemic and driving a lot of folks to do remote work and and organizations wanting to centralize what we've been preaching for years, and now they're they recognize the benefit of that and uh, trying to optimize the endpoint and not having to manage all these disparate Windows systems and just manage what's in the data center. So certainly IGEL uh, lends itself to that uh, ease of management and security on the endpoint.
0: Yeah. So the world of uh, pandemic has helped. Uh, Connectivity is better than ever. Oh yeah. Uh, back-end systems are more powerful than ever and and scalable, both up and down cloud, non-cloud, like we talked about last couple of weeks. It's, It's you know we we probably all saw this in the late '90s as the future, but it's starting to become the reality.
2: Absolutely. No. Hey, uh, you know what? I have a couple of questions, actually, unrelated to the blog post, but everything you just said, Bill. So, um, first things first. So, seven fifteen has been end of support. Mainstream's with support. You can still get extended support if you need that with Citrix for a month and a half now. Yes, sir. Um, What what are you seeing? Like, why have customers waited so long? To make that that upgrade uh that's a really good question i think
1: largely it is driven it has driv- it's been driven by they didn't have the ability to either didn't have staffing ability to manage it or mm-hmm. more likely what we're seeing is they got so busy keeping it in production and they didn't want to touch it until they had kind of a slowdown as it were um so a lot of customers have have just simply said we you know this is working for us we it's become critical to our business, more critical perhaps than it was in the past. So we need to hold on to it as long as we can. And things are now starting to level off a little bit to the point where they can leverage a newer version. Of course, all of these, as you can understand, I'm sure, Jeremy, um, are in or parallel migrations. These are not in-place upgrades. Um, we tend to shy away from in-place upgrades, frankly, but um, we will do them if the customer really wants them. But generally, we're going to do a parallel migration where we build a a DAS environment, or even a 2203 environment in parallel, and then migrate users over for it, or, um, or leverage storefront to um, aggregate both environments.
2: Okay, I, are you are you finding the customers? Because we're talking about 715. What was that? Probably server 2016 when that was deployed. 2012 R2 or 2016? Yes. So customers are probably using this opportunity to refresh the OS to, to like Absolutely. 2019, yes. probably not 2022 yet, but definitely 2019, yeah. right? Gotcha.
1: 2019, we'll have some go, some customers are going to 1912, most are going to
2: 2203. Got it, got it, okay.
1: They buy more um, time obviously if they go to 2203, but um, uh, some are reluctant to go to the to the shiny new object, so so to speak, even though it's not all that shiny and new anymore, it was what, six months ago, so.
2: Right. Well, there's, so there's some things in this blog post that um, that talk about the on-prem current release um, yeah. and connectivity out to like Azure VDAs, cloud VDAs, things like that. And I guess um, they would still be relevant if you were on, or I guess 1912 would still be relevant if you have workloads sitting in 1912, put it, you know, connected to things out in Azure, that would still work. One of the other things I bumped into is customers that were making the 715 jump is they had workloads running in public clouds that worked just fine yes. with 715. Even, you know, 1912, but as they made the jump to 2203, uh, those machines quit working, or at least they quit registering because, you know, we deprecated that support. So, um, yeah, I don't know. They that they had l-
1: hybrid rights, I believe, right? Unless they had
2: hybrid rights, yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a different license file that you've got to yeah. Which, download. Yeah. Now, so that was the
0: voice of uh, Jeremy Myers, the uh, director I, of sales engineers for Citrix for the East Coast.
2: Yeah, I got right into it, Andy. I'm sorry. I had. All right. Bill got me; he got my wheels turning. I was just kind of curious. I love it,
0: man. That's that's what we do, right? We and and look, none of that was rocket science. But as you can imagine, these are your line of business mm-hmm. apps running either as mm-hmm. published apps or presented desktops with apps included. This is scary big stuff. Um, that's why you have a you know a, part, a partner like Zintegra to help you in between customer and Citrix get this done and and get it done right and be there to help fix the fallout if it's if there's issues.
2: And speaking of, so here's another one, um, and it is about IGEL, in fact. So, you know, I've got a customer who is looking to make a move off of VMware, and right now they have a mix of IGEL endpoints as well as, um, I think, Dell Teradici-based endpoints. So I'm not concerned about the IGELs. You know, obviously, there's a, it's a, there's a Linux VDA, I mean, a Linux um, workspace app. Um, but from a Teradici perspective, um, can I repurpose those guys with maybe a UD Pocket? I don't think I can install the iGel OS on it, but can I repurpose with a UD Pocket and and leverage that hardware, that Teradici hardware?
0: Maybe. Maybe. We would have to, number one, would it be supported? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Does it have the hardware inside it to work? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, I mean, that's done the problems, right? Historically, when a customer was sold a zero client, it was barely enough to power up. And not right. only had the abilities to work with one client or one of the proposed solutions, or if it was a hardware-based solution, um, uh, uh, the Teradici ones, it was a hardware-based Teradici, right? And, right. And hardwa- there's always based. software behind hardware, but uh, chances are no, uh, but it's worth taking a look at. If th- Here's the way I put it. If there is a solution on the market that can do it and actually supported doing it, it would be Ijo. I
2: got it. Okay. Well, listen, I didn't mean to start this off with an Ask Me Anything, but… Yeah, that's all right. I had questions. I had questions. Well,
0: let me let me do this. Our topic for today is based around a blog from Heather Tat. We've done a couple of Heather's uh, in the past, and this one is specifically. Duh, 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 scroll way down. Uh, what's new with Citrix DAZ and Citrix Virtual App and Desktops September 2022? So from you know now, basically. Uh, all right, Jeremy. Real quick, Citrix DAZ is what compared to Citrix virtual apps and desktop? You have to have this question all the time asked. How do you succinctly help people understand the difference when Citrix is using the term DAS for one thing and virtual app and desktop for the other?
2: So Citrix DAS is essentially the Citrix virtual apps and desktops as a service. So we're hosting the the management part of a Citrix solution and Citrix virtual apps and desktops is a fully on-prem, fully customer IT managed or partner managed um, solution. So you would manage everything from the virtual delivery agents to the backend infrastructure as well. So the delivery controllers and storefront and licensing database, the whole nine yards.
0: And, and Bill, how many projects do we have to upgrade somebody's DAS platform? <laughs>
1: uh, not very many, um, you know, that, that's usually pretty straightforward. It's basically the VDA, unless they have on-prem access layer. So uh,
0: yeah.
1: NetScaler, NetScaler and um, storefront.
0: That's right, because when you move to as-a-service, then it's Citrix's responsibility to have their process in place to do it for right. you, and you ain't got to do that anymore. Right. That's one of the big benefits of it. There's still plenty of stuff to work on. Don't worry about that. But uh, we don't have to worry about in-place upgrades anymore, parallel upgrades, or uh, database migrations. Oh, my God. Remember those?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's why it's going so I got another one then. So I know we're still in the first paragraph, but you know the the model with the Citrix versioning, specific to the the on-premises Citrix virtual, you know, the virtual apps and desktops, IT-managed version is, you know, there's a current release that comes out roughly every quarter, right? So, you know, right now we're looking at 2209. That represents the September 2022 current release, and so that is constantly being updated. You know, there's a version that comes out every quarter. Um, You know, every 18 months, we have a long-term service release. And so that's why earlier this year, we released the 2203 long-term service release. So there's five years of support. The reason 17 or 715 is going into life is because we've reached that five years. But long story short, your upgrade process for customers who are going from current release to current release, Bill, what does that typically look like? what do you I mean it's pretty simple it's a over
1: it's an over install typically on the master image
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: basically an upgrade from 2206 i guess to 2209 is it in uh, place Are
2: you doing parallel in most place the time we do
1: it, it depends on the customer um, mm-hmm. uh, you know obviously the smaller ones typically will uh, will allow, allow us to do it on a um, or we'll do it on a, a copy of the master image or test image the larger ones certainly will um, will do a parallel and do a lot of testing. They'll have the whole process of, uh, you know, dev, test, prod, UAT that or UAT then prod, those sorts of processes.
0: And Bill, everybody Got does it. that in their non-production environment first, whether it's DAS Correct. or virtual app and they all they all do
2: that, right? They all have <laughs> test dev. They all have. Oh yeah. Sure. Non-prod. Sure. Andy's yeah. Laughing. Well, Andy's I, laughing because 10, 12 years ago. Before I was even at Citrix, he used to socialize this and to this day, so you know, people don't know. I
0: will highlight if you're using Daz, so as a a Citrix platform, you can carve all five or whatever amount of license you need and you have a fighting chance of having a pre-production environment and neither one Mm -hmm. of them do you have production or pre-production, you have to manage the platform. And you can tell Citrix, hey, upgrade this one first, but don't upgrade this one last. Um, it is just a magical world to live in. Uh, those customers that just basically have one desktop spun off in the corner that they test all this stuff in—it's not really testing the whole platform. Yeah, mm-hmm. good enough. Yeah.
2: Yep, you're right. All right, I, I promise to stop. Let's. There's some good stuff in here. Let's let's roll through it. I'm sorry. It will happen again.
0: Um, all right. So, calling out that the, uh, the now now available Citrix Virtual App and Desktop and it's twenty two oh nine for Jeremy for our listeners who haven't been around this very long. Twenty two oh nine is nomenclature for what?
2: So the 09 represents the month, and the twenty two represents the year. So this would be the current release that was released in September of twenty twenty two. Okay. And this was this is
1: typically supported for how long? Mm-hmm
2: you're gonna ask me that I would say I I'm a, months, isn't it? it's it's maybe a year and a half at most but okay. yeah you listen if you're on a current release you're looking at this list here wondering what's new and whether or not it makes sense for me to upgrade right. and but you you've got that process or you've got a partner um, who's walking you through the process of upgrading because you need to do this somewhat frequently for sure yeah
0: and hey guys this is not a long-term service release this is just the latest release right?
2: This is the latest release. In fact, if I had to imagine, we'll see a twenty-two twelve, right? So that means some kind of release uh, in the in the fourth quarter as well. I'm not sure if we've got one, but we typically do. So we had a twenty-one twelve. I'm sure we'll have a twenty-two twelve.
0: Yeah. And specifically, what we're going to talk about for the next little bit is around the Citrix Virtual App and Desktop twenty-two o nine current release, which is for the uh, the on premises platform. And by the way, if you're going to have multiple data centers involved in here, you might have two of these built out, aggregated behind a, a bunch of mm-hmm. NetScalers and uh, storefront servers. Um, and Bill made the NetScaler mark pretty quick a while ago. Throw it out there, right? Citrix has gone back to using the term NetScaler to identify the uh, application delivery controllers and all the diehard Citrix folks from 10 to 15 years ago, 20 years ago, are, are ecstatic that they get to use the
2: term NetScaler again. Yep, it's official. It's official, official.
0: All right. Uh, First section here talks about extended HDX optimizations. And let's, again, for the hardcore Citrix folks, just point out HDX is the marketing term for all the high definition stuff Citrix does. A big part of that is the protocol. So HDX protocol, I think, is really going to be part of the conversation here, if not the whole conversation. Um, You know, if you're talking to Jeremy, Bill or myself and you want to use, you know, the advanced ICA capabilities, also known as HDX, we'll know what you mean.
2: Yeah, you know what's so? What's interesting about this is the HDX piece is the piece that is primarily end-user facing. This is the stuff that end-user sees, right? So anything you see related to HDX usually means we're improving the user experience. And so when I look at the list of things here, so there's there's a couple of things that pop out. In fact, Andy, I don't think I've ever. I know we're on a Zoom call, but I don't think I've ever seen your background blurred. But that's normal now. So Bill always has it. Andy sometimes does it. I don't think I've ever had it. But ultimately. Happens a lot. And that's not been something that has been supported. I'm going to come back to 10 bit for sure, but this one jumped out. Um, That hasn't been supported if you're running teams from within a virtual app, virtual desktop, the ability to blur your background. So this is this has been added, which I think is pretty neat because most folks do it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Most folks do it.
0: And Jeremy, I'll address my different setup here. So, I've got over here, I've got a Surface uh, tablet connect to a monitor, keyboard, mouse. Over here, I've got a Chrome OS. Over here, I've got a, an LG all in one running iGel. In all cases, I'm using Citrix Workspace to get my job done all day. I just move from device to device to device um, mm-hmm. because I want to move around. Plus, I want to test the different use cases, uh, including, you know, in this case, Zoom offloading.
2: That's awesome. The other thing, and this might be later in the um the, the blog post here is it actually there, there's more indication of whether or not you're, so this is all predicated on you having certain things turned on, right? Do you have the version of teams? Do you have the right workspace app? You know, there's a couple of things that need to be in place for it to happen, but sometimes it's hard to tell whether or not optimization has been enabled. And so I think something else later in the blog actually points it out. So we have a feature that will let you know whether or not you're optimized for your best experience with teams, which I think is neat. A little feedback. So, no. All right, let's start at the top. 10-bit high HDR.
0: All right, take it. 10-bit ten, ten high dynamic range, HDR. What does this mean?
2: Um, all right, so I'm not a I'm not a huge HDR person, meaning I don't quite understand all the details, but essentially what this is, is it, it, it makes it look better, right? So you've got 10-bit graphics now, um, but high definition range, high dynamic range, which if you've ever turned this on in your TV, um, the color's better, the darks are darker, um, you just have wider range on what that viewing experience looks like. And so, you know, we brought this into um, we brought this into the VDA now, so this is completely supported if you're doing things like, um, you know, if you've got a 4K camera and you've got an HDR camera that you want to use for Teams, you know, all of a sudden it, you can basically leverage that experience inside a, a session, which is kind of neat. Um, is this on by default or you got to turn it on? a policy if i had to imagine because this probably means more bandwidth and so you know that's a really big deal but you know the scenario they point out here is remote medical imaging so you know one of the use cases we've had for a long time is you've got radiologists who want to look at images technically i'm gonna i'm gonna booger up this word here but there's a word for whether a diagnostic read right so i don't know that they've been able to do quote unquote diagnostic reads through citrix in the past um, just based on the resolution requirements, but you could at least see and make maybe a, you know, make a call. But I wonder if this changes that, you know, I wonder if this is a required requirement driven by just the medical industry.
0: Yeah. I, well, if nothing else, and, and, you know, you asked me a while ago, hey, if you had to do this, mm-hmm. what, what, what thin client OS could you count on being the most likely to work? Hi, Joe. Mm-hmm. If you had mm-hmm. to do uh, desktop virtualization and you're looking for that uh, brokering and, and and middleware platform, Citrix, right? Citrix has features that are uh, still um, in process from the others uh, to catch up. And then new things like this come around. You're like, oh, yeah, well, why would I use anything but what's likely to solve mm-hmm. the most challenges? Um, while you're doing that, I pulled up the uh, Zoom statistics and you can tell I'm offloading it. It's got a VDI tab here and you can see what. What uh, the VDI, what the endpoint, the Igel endpoint is actually doing versus the um, the VDI itself is having to actually do.
2: Oh, that's pretty interesting. So that's offloaded.
0: All, all right, uh, next one, Bill. I'll let you try this one first. Virtual uh, Channel Allow List Feature Update.
1: Um, this is a system environment variable. I don't really, I'm not really sure what what you would use this for, to be honest. But it's a new environment variable they've added. They've added to uh, allow customers to streamline uh, adding custom virtual channels. Um, I, again, I'm not sure exactly when that this would be leveraged. Maybe Jeremy can shed some light on it, but uh, it looks like they've created some, uh, some additional capabilities within the, the VDA to support um, uh, adding custom virtual channels uh, for performance reasons or resource reasons.
2: I'll, I'll be honest. Um, so I, I neither do I, right? But I will say this. Um, what this does is it, it basically makes the platform more extensible. Yeah. So what virtual channels would you want to add? I don't know. Um, I don't know that I'm creative enough to think through that. But the whole idea that we can maybe extend the platform to support new things, I think is pretty neat. I think this is where... Um, you see, you know, ISV partners, maybe some OEMs insert. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's something that IGEL could insert in that would be kind of unique to them. But um, I'm all a fan for making, uh, you know, the platform extensible. Especially, there's something else in this blog article that kind of in the same bucket. So, we'll get to that. How's that well, for
0: And I should highlight in the beginning, this is likely to be a two-part, if not three-part uh, podcast mm-hmm. that we do here. It's just a ton to cover, which, you know, that's great to see that Citrix is taking their legacy product and making it uh, more extensible because that's what that's what we need. That's what customers need is seeing that uh, that that mainstream product from Citrix become even better than mm-hmm. it was before, which is great. Um, and uh, I, I guess I will highlight that ICA or HDX protocol. Uh, it's the channels all these years that have been in there by default, and the ones you can turn on, turn off, uh, and then um, now additional channel capabilities. That's what makes that protocol the magical piece that makes Citrix, Citrix.
2: Um, it's pretty interesting. Most folks don't know what a virtual channel is. Um, you know, they just turn on Citrix and it works. But um, listen, just about anything, anyone who's been a director has seen the virtual channels. Um, they've seen there's the there's certainly the video channel, but there's an audio channel. There's a printing channel. There's, I mean, I want to say 16 channels. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. There we go. I always think of it that big pipe, that one you see there. That's got it. Looks like fiber optic cable. That guy. Yep.
0: Yeah. And there's more than this now. But that's how you mm-hmm. got to understand it. There's, you know, channels happening within the ICA protocol um, that can be enablers
2: for success. And also, you can turn them off if they don't apply. Mm-hmm. Or right. in this, uh, in the case of this blog post, add another one potentially. Add, add your own. Bring mm-hmm. your own. Bring your own ICA channel. Oh my! I know what's about to happen. B Y O I C A, bo Bovica. Oh, there's a different and Don't don't tell the Citrix marketing people that they might actually use it. <laughs> All
0: right, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned this a well while ago. We hit it real quick. Uh, the ability to blur your background using offloaded or Teams within your VDI—pretty self um, self self-explanatory. Pretty,
2: pretty straightforward. If you had if you were running Teams within a virtual desktop or you know as a as a virtual app, you couldn't blur your background. Uh, now you can. So it does require the most recent uh, Workspace app and uh, you know the VDA 2109, which is interesting, right? So this is a VDA, uh, a VDA that's been out for over a year or I guess at a year, but it does require um, a certain versions of Teams and. Probably the latest delivery controller with whatever policies. But yeah, the nice thing about Citrix
0: and Teams and whatever the endpoint you're integrating is, it, it for the most part just works. You don't have to worry about like what I'm doing here with Zoom, where I have to have a certain version in the VDI and a certain version on the endpoint and have it turned on and enabled by my, my IGEL and my Citrix world. It just for the most part works. Yeah. Uh, all right, Bill, next one, is uh, uh, teams, uh, app sharing within a Linux VDI. i I threw the word VDI on there. Um, what, what do you think of this?
1: This is, this is actually pretty neat. Uh, so it gives the user the, obviously it's pretty self-explanatory, but it gives the user the ability to share, share their screen. You know, something that we do a lot in teams and zoom, um, you know, when, or whether it's on an endpoint or in a VDI, but, uh, this gives them the capability of being able to do that um, without, you know, it, it used to be, I think on the Linux app, might have even been on the Windows app. And in Teams, some of the older versions, when you shared your screen, your video turned off. And then when you stopped sharing your screen, your video would turn back on. I believe that was Teams, one of the older versions. Um, so that in Linux, you, I don't think you could even share your screen. And now this is going to give you, give the end user the ability to
0: do that. And specifically Linux being the VDI. Portion of the story, Linux on the endpoint, I could do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, guys, and this, you know, again, we're probably going to have multiple sessions on this. We're not going to get through it all in today's time. Um, Why does this matter? Why why does adopting Linux users as first class citizens matter in 2023?
2: Um, I feel like there is a larger answer to this that you've got teed up. I will say, I don't see. Um, a lot of Linux VDA in my customer base in my geography. But when I talk to my peers in the central oil and gas, they use um, Linux a lot Um, out West as well. So, I mean, I want to know the answer to that as much as you do, Andy. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, we don't see it much, to be honest, uh, within
1: our project base. But um, I know we we do have some oil and gas customers that have inquired of it um, out in Texas. Um, And then I think it's also used overseas a lot. Because uh, I think there's a lot more propensity for folks there to leverage Linux rather than Windows for whatever reason.
2: I'll be honest. There's a there's a part of me, the the nerd part of me, that likes to link, um, sort of tinker with Linux. You know, I've got right. a couple of laptops that I'll I'll fire up. Um, you know, I've got Ubuntu running, um, not Rocky Linux, but back in the day it was CentOS. I think they changed the name recently, but um, but even in Azure, you know, we've got our our, you know, our team tenant. We spun up Red Hat Enterprise in the past, so. Yeah. But it scratches an itch for me for sure.
0: So historically, and I didn't really have an answer for this, but as you guys were talking, mm-hmm. I'm thinking through it. And historically, it's been about those um, customers running, you know, design applications that ran really well mm-hmm. on Linux and didn't need the capabilities of Windows. Um, but I also think it's about security, right? If I'm if I've got secure endpoints that are read-only, Linux-based, like Igel, which I'm running right now, or if I've got that VDI that's also um, you know, Linux base, and maybe it's more secure. Maybe it's not than Windows, but it's certainly less attacked. There's, there's a security element of that, that maybe oil and gas and energy sectors and people like that are going to start to adopt as much as they can. Uh, and we need to be there to support them with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it's a pretty big use case in other areas for sure. And, you know, honestly, when I first scrolled through this, I forgot that we were talking about the Linux VDA, but we've added a bunch specific to the VDA and not just um you know, not just platform support. So that first one there is literally just supporting the new versions of, of Linux. So, you know, Ubuntu, Red Hat, and, and Rocky slash CentOS, probably the biggest ones I've seen in the past. Um, so it's certainly a refresh there, but seeing the other enhancements that we've seen on the Windows side come to Linux, you can just see where it's evolving.
0: So we'll just go through them, but you mentioned mm-hmm. the support for the latest versions. Yes, that's mm-hmm. that's that's great, really. I, I mm-hmm. don't want to trivialize it because that's important. Uh, session, watermark enhancements. So, you know, watermarking across the the capabilities of Citrix sessions, and now, now we can do it in Linux.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I should know whether or not we could do that in the past. I assume we could, but, you know, it sounds like we can insert um, the image files into it as well, which is kind of neat. Yeah.
0: Uh, next one on the list is uh, desktop environment quick switching enhancement. What, is, what does that mean, Jeremy?
2: Uh, well, so I, if you've never worked with Linux before, um, let's let's talk about Windows real quick. So when you log into <laughs> Windows, you've got this sort of desktop UI you're looking at. That's all you get. That's the only version you ever get, right? You get the Windows 11 UI, you get the Windows 10 UI. That's it. In a Linux world, um, there are several different desktop views, UIs that you can you can select from. So I think the the two most popular are KDE and GNOME, and you know there are an endless number that you can install on top of your Linux desktop. Um, it looks like we support the ability to quick switch um, between them, or less, or at least as a user, uh, assuming it's installed, um, you know, select it yourself. So let's just say someone spun up a, a catalog of desktops and they made, you know, KDE the default. It sounds like you can go in and pick GNOME, assuming it's installed on that that instance, uh, as an end user, you know. Maybe not having to put a request in to say I'd rather use GNOME than KDE, which is it's pretty neat. Uh,
0: this has got me wanting to uh, break out an old machine and start installing Linux again.
2: <laughs> yeah, it scratches an it- itch, Andy, for sure. Well, you know what? I could do a virtual machine and connect to it through Citrix now. You could also do that. Yep. Uh, Bill, support for additional
0: user authentications methods in non SSO scenarios.
1: Yeah, this you know in Linux, the, typically the you can join it to a Windows domain using a protocol called or a, a, a an add-in called Samba, uh, and that used to be required. It may still be required, but um, you users could not use different login names within sessions. And with this release, they can. Well, actually, I think they could, to be honest with you, but. Looks like they could log in with different usernames, but they couldn't use smart cards um, with the Linux uh, the Linux VDA, and it looks like now they can.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's always been a bugaboo for me—not just not understanding the Active Directory type um, LDAP relationship, but that's been solved for a while, and now there's additional options.
2: I'm just glad you said Samba, Bill, because in my head, I always said Samba. Maybe there's a little um, dance that goes along with that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's like five ways. To, there's five supported ways to add a Linux machine. Yeah. There are other options. That's to the a, one that to I'm, a domain. I'm most familiar yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. This is what confuses people about open source. There's many ways that's going to happen. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's part of the problem. That's the blessing and the curse all at the same time. Yeah. Hey, so this next one's uh, super exciting to me. Yeah. Um, from multiple fronts but the support for kvm as a hypervisor to host the virtual desktops on however there's a call out at the bottom here that uh, that they don't uh, support MCS as part of that and that's I, i've been around that for a long time I'm actually currently working with another um, hypervisor solution which i think citrix jeremy should find extremely interesting if we make progress there to bring uh, MCS to a low-cost uh, linux hypervisor um, but uh, you want to you want to cover this one jeremy
2: um, I mean, it sounds like we have a new dropdown. Um, so when you go to create a hosting connection and you're managing VMs, that's sit on KVM sounds like it's supported now. Now, you know, it says, um, MCS is not supported, but I would say yet. I'm not saying cause I know that, but I just know, you know, there's always like a version 1.0 of everything. And it sounds like this is probably like the initial release. So, you know, now we support KVM as a hypervisor. Um, you know, I, I would imagine at some point, we've done this across you know other platforms as you know we'll add mcs eventually well that's that's good to know
0: right because i mean mm-hmm. that that opens up you know citrix has zen server and zen server has been amazing for a lot of companies but you know it's not the future of most hypervisors and uh, most customers hypervisors so bringing in kvm as an option uh, that'd be a big step mm-hmm. yeah and, I th- and this is
1: i i really think this is probably uh this was coming This has been coming a long time i mean arguably there are some third-party hypervisors that are leveraged, that leverage KVM that are already supported. So, you know, the one that comes to mind is AHV, um, which I think that had its roots in KVM, but um, that's supported fully for MCS and everything. So I think this is a natural extension of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I'm excited about it. also it doesn't stop what we're working on over here at Zintegra, where we're gonna take a, a mainstream hypervisor that most people can't integrate <coughs> with Citrix. And we're gonna, we're gonna bring that to market probably in the next mm-hmm. six months. So stay tuned. Um, file, copy, and paste available for all supported Linux distributions sounds like something that you would have assumed was um, supported and working, but with there being so many uh, deviations, variants of Linux, probably an easier thing to say than actually do.
2: You're probably right. I'm looking at those those versions too, right? So, um, knowing that the most recent versions of all of those are, I mean, listen, 1804, that's, that's not recent whatsoever. So... This is a big deal. sounds like we've got five years of work that just got caught up on. Copy and paste. That's a big deal. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, let's talk about everybody's favorite topic, uh, session recording, also known as Smart Otter for people who've been around forever. Uh, what's this announcement, Bill?
1: Uh, this is really about security around the recordings. Um, so with the 2209 VDA, they can restrict access to certain recordings. So... This would be, I think, in particularly in a regulated environment or really any environment, you, you're not going to want just anybody or any admin to be able to access session recordings. Uh, you want to break it up and say, you know, the, the, this person can is the only person or this group is the only group that can access recordings made by HR. or This group is the only one that can access recordings made of sessions that deal with uh, finance, et cetera. So um, I think before it was not as granular. Now it appears to be getting more
2: granular. Right. Yeah. Imagine, you know, using the word admin, what does that mean? doesn't necessarily mean IT admin, you know, right. it could be an HR person. It could be, mm-hmm. um, you know, it could be a compliance person. It could be a security person, you know, who knows, but, right. you know, being able to do some role-based access for recordings is pretty neat. All right. Uh, next session talks about uh,
0: REST APIs for CVAD. Again, keep in mind, we're talking about the on-premises platform here. Um, Jeremy, what's, why is this important to companies, customers?
2: Well, so when you think about um, you know SDKs, you think about APIs and how products integrate with other products. Um, REST APIs are how they're doing that these days, right? So these XML files that define you know what can and can't be done. I I think it's just like modern development, and so it's it's kind of nice to see we've finally extended and updated the platform to support REST APIs because I think most developers that's what they're looking for when they're looking to integrate with. You know, with citrix they're not looking to the traditional software development kit the sdk so this is kind of a neat i mean i'm not a developer so i can't dig in and tell you but you know this is how the cloud works so even though we're talking about an on-prem product you know the cloud is leveraging rest apis to just for this interaction between software platforms so this is kind of neat to see
0: well as yeah. a partner of Citrix and a partner of ServiceNow, we're looking forward to every opportunity to be able to pull data from one platform into an aggregator like ServiceNow and be able to digest it and make you know make motions and decisions based on based on the, the, the centralizing of that data. Bill, you were going to say something?
1: Yeah, I was just going to point out the last sentence in that first paragraph there. Developers can program the automation systems once, and then it can work across cloud on-prem and hybrid. So this is really... I think what they're doing here is the, the REST API capabilities already already exist in the cloud and they're bringing them to the on-prem environment so the developers don't have to write different code in theory for different platforms. They are unified.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's a powerful tool for yes. customers, uh, partners like us, as well as other vendors that want to you know, play along in this space. All right. Next section talks about updates and key integrations with leading public cloud providers, uh, new Citrus capabilities on Microsoft Azure to start with uh, significantly reduced cost uh, storage costs for power down VMs. Cloud is awesome. Public cloud is awesome, but uh, potentially potentially. Um, it could be very uh, expensive. I also often think about the idea that I've got my, you know, I've got my uh, w- house hooked up to the, the city county water. And if the break in the line is on my side of the meter, well, guess who's responsible for paying that, even though I didn't have anything to do with breaking it. Um, got to be on top of our costs. And we start talking about public cloud and consumption of things. The first one, Jeremy, reduction, uh, significantly reduced storage costs for powered down
2: VMs. Um. So, let me let me start by saying, before we get to this, um, we're talking about public cloud providers. So when I first read this blog, I thought we were specifically talking about like the CVAD on-premises product, um, but all of these things here, even though they're cloud enabled, would be relevant to an on-premises solution or a DAS solution by default. So Citrix hosting the management plane. but if you're an on-premises customer uh, running 2209 with hybrid rights installed, you would see this too, right? So now you can install you know, VDA sitting in the cloud. So in this first one here. um, Jeremy, real quick though, so with CVAD, um, without hybrid rights, you
0: can't really connect to public clouds, but if you have hybrid rights, then you get to connect to public clouds from your on-premises CVAD platform, right?
2: Correct, so without, if you're just running a standard on-premises CVAD solution, so you're not running hybrid rights, there's a license file that you've downloaded and installed. so that your, your on-premise environment notice, knows you're not hybrid aware, right? So um, if you try to register a VDA that's sitting in a public cloud, it just won't register. So I forget the exact event ID you can go look up, but either way, um, it, it just won't register. And so you have to have that hybrid rights license. Inside the license file, there's some code, there's a line of code that says, hey, this is a hybrid rights file, and and uh, that's how it knows the difference. But you're you're yeah. correct. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so it still applies. Um, still Very applies. Very much applies, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've got my DAS or I've got my mm-hmm. CVAD on-prem and I want to make sure that I'm not paying for stuff while I'm not actively using it. Storage is one of those.
2: Storage is one of those, right? So um, you can spin up a brand new instance type in Azure. Um, out of the gate, you get to define what kind of storage you want that instance to have. And um, a lot of folks, in fact, I think it defaults to premium SSD, Um and once it's created, I think it's been a challenge in the past to change that storage type. Um, sounds like if you turn off the VM, you can go change the storage type to something a little bit less expensive, which is which is pretty important. So you don't have to redeploy your machine catalog. And Jeremy, does anybody deploy
0: desktops on standard H hard drives these days, or is it all SSD?
2: Mm, I, you know what, I, I'll say this: I'm testing PBS in Azure right now, and we're doing it entirely with standard HD. Um, and start entirely with standard HDDs, right? So not SSD whatsoever, yeah, because we're only using that hard drive for some cache. In fact, PBS and Azure defaults to RAM cache with overflowed disk, right. And so we don't necessarily need fast disk. So there's a big cost savings there.
0: So Bill, as somebody who's you know neck deep in projects all the time, what do you see? Almost
1: entirely uh, MCS. I don't think we've done that may have done one project with PBS and Azure, but um, the majority yeah. of the projects are MCS, mm-hmm. and we're going to throw them on. On premium SSD, ninety five percent of the time. Um, this, so this is huge for customers because when they shut down, when that machine shuts down at six seven o'clock at night, they can flip the bit on that from premium to standard. Because you remember in Azure, you shut the machine down, you're not paying for consumption, but you're still paying for that disk space that's being used by that machine, which in most cases is pretty minimal in an MCS environment. But imagine if you have some some um, static desktops, uh, persistent desktops deployed. The ability to flip that from premium to standard can can result in a pretty pretty extensive cost savings depending you know based on the number of, of uh vms you have right. um and literally it just flips at the standard and then when you start it back up it right before it starts the machine it flips it back to premium uh so the the charges differ uh significantly right
2: pretty slick actually i didn't realize that so it's automated then i mean That's my understanding. That's my understanding. Um, When a VM is
1: powered down, um, I I don't know whether you're. I I would doubt you're having to do it manually. I'm making. I'm someone making an assumption here. It seems
2: like a. It seems like a like a like a bad use of resources if you have to do it manually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other (laughs) thing that's interesting is I don't. I this is my own view based on some stuff I've read. Standard Mm -hmm. HDD isn't really a hard drive. It's really a a flag that Azure sets to reduce the amount of, of throughput. Uh, my okay. understanding is that all of the disks in Azure are SSDs. They just have different tiers and different uh, 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 capacity and throughput levels, and they set the bits based on
2: what you pay for. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, so I don't know how to sense.
0: respond to that. I mean, like, that's BS. Or I'm like, well, that's really smart. Which I,
2: I want to pop into the console and just see where that checkbox is, right? Because I, I want to figure out how that works. That's interesting. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Mm-hmm. Hey,
0: Bill, did you have a moment of Jeremy talking about labbing up... Um, DVS and Azure and using RAM cache and hard drive, like, man, I want to go do that. I want to do that. Yep,
1: yep.
0: I did. Yep. And the reality soaks in and you're like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, I don't have time for that, I guess what I'm saying. That's Yeah, that's the challenge. All right. So, guys, we're uh, <laughs> got about 10 minutes left. Again, this is going to be a part one of part two, maybe three, heck, maybe part four, uh, which is great to have this much content to cover. Uh, hibernation support for Azure VMs. Um, Bill, I guess we'll start with you.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, this pretty much explains it in the title, but this is something that folks have asked for a long time. And, and this is just literally, instead of shutting the machine down, you can hibernate it just like you've been able to do in the VM console for years. Um, be able to, you know, hibernate a VM, basically it saves the memory state. And then when you, when it starts back up, it's much quicker than starting from scratch and rebooting or booting. Um, I don't think you have any storage savings here. Uh, you may have some compute savings. Uh, I would assume you do, but, um, this is pretty uh, significant I think for for some customers where users want to get in late at night and they don't want to have to spend, you know, 2 or 3 minutes waiting for it to boot up if it although typically it's really not even that long. Uh, the other benefit of this is is the ability to hibernate when you're you're in the middle of something and you um you, know, you save it but you want to get right back with the same, you know, desktop settings or not desktop environment, the windows that are open in the same place or the same windows are open, the ability to hibernate the environment and then come right back into it. Uh, without it having to stay running the whole time. That makes
2: sense. I'm assuming this is to save money, right? Yeah. Like that's the whole purpose of this. But the, the way I understood Azure consumption today <laughs> is the only time you're saving money on an instance is when you shut it down and the resources have been deallocated. Deallocated, yeah, you're right. So this they wouldn't be saving money here. You're right. Absolutely. So so that leads into, I mean listen, this sounds neat, but like what would be the use case for this is I guess my question. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know.
0: I'm asking you two, the smart guys.
2: Are you asking yourself? This is me thinking out loud because, of course, customers are going to want to know how to save money and use cases and things like that. So, uh, listen, this is how my wheels turn sometimes is, you know, I'm trying to figure out how this would be useful to folks. And and so maybe this is where we we follow up on this in in week two of the podcast. Well, so, Jeremy,
0: to be clear, you're saying – the only way to deprovision, deallocate things is when it's totally turned off. Just hibernating, it would not be good enough.
2: Well, I just, so I'm thinking through this, right? So when you power down a virtual machine or an instance in Azure from outside, you know, the, the instance, meaning you didn't go start shutdown from within the instance, um, Azure will basically power down the VM, deallocate it, which means those resources are no no longer allocated to your subscription, right? So they go back into the pool of resources that everyone uses, right? Um, and at that point, you're not getting charged for anything other than the storage. So far, so good. Yeah. But in this case, um, if we're simply hibernating, I got to assume that we're keeping the memory state, you know, the storage state, those sorts of things, which means you can't deallocate unless you, I mean, you'll lose all those things, right? So this feature sounds like it, you're just kind of putting it to sleep, which is okay. I just, I'm trying to figure out what I'm gaining by doing all of this. If uh, if it costs the same for me to hibernate versus to keep it running, why not? Why wouldn't I just keep it running? I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, the last sentence of this says reconnect to the previous state of the VM. You could argue that just leave it running, and I can reconnect to the previous state of the VM. So that's a good point.
2: Yeah, I guess I don't know enough about why just hibernation support in Azure. So this is yeah. this is how I figure out what to go research during the week. Yeah, so I I'm, I'm with you guys. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. All right, yeah, check, check it out. Let us know what you come back with. It's a question you're going to have to answer for customers anyway, so mm-hmm. not a bad thing to have to go find out. Uh, support for Azure AD dynamic security groups for Azure AD joined machines. Uh, Jeremy,
2: go ahead. Okay, so this is what I don't I don't know what an Azure AD dynamic security group is right now. So not just that, but I usually think of security groups in the context of delivery groups because that's usually how I'm assigning Membership to that delivery group. So, uh, I don't know. Bill, this is, you, one of, Bill, you is know. this
0: something you think you uh, have an I have an have knowledge of?
1: General idea, um, but just based on reading it, I, I think that I'm not. I, I'm with Jeremy to some degree. I'm not entirely sure what an Azure AD dynamic security group is, but I think the point they're making here is if you have an Azure AD joined VM, you can assign your your security groups to the delivery group based on its name. Um, So you can say, I've got a delivery group with a certain name in it, and then any time a VM joins that delivery group, it gets X permissions or X security groups get assigned to it. It's almost like a group policy for security groups or something. That's basically what I could come up with based on the reading it.
2: I will say this, though, um, having no idea what this means just yet. you know i am seeing a lot more interest in azure ad joined vms and azure ad joined security scenarios so you know if anything this kind of shows the direction citrix is going in supporting um, non traditional ad joined machines which yeah I
1: mean, it's rounding it out you're absolutely right yeah. i see that a lot too customers mm-hmm. wanting to do azure ad join or hybrid join machines
0: well, I mean, it hadn't been that long ago where you could be an Azure user, but your machine had to be on some type of you know non-Azure AD joined right. domain. Right. Now we're to the point where we can dynamically reassign groups, it looks like.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Always fun. Uh, support for Azure VM Extensions. Bill?
1: Yeah, this is the uh, Azure Resource Manager or the ARM template capability. Um, you can add VM extensions to the catalog. There's a list of supported extensions, apparently, that um, that can be enabled. Uh, and this is the ability to add them dynamically, I guess, when you create a machine catalog versus manually.
2: Yeah. Yeah, some mean? of the... Um, uh, so I couldn't help but click the link, right? And so some <laughs> of the um, extensions are page file locations, page right. file settings, um, apparently some Azure throttling. Maybe that's a different section I've just rolled into, but... Um, yeah, there's some interesting stuff here. The fact you can do it on the fly is pretty neat. But
0: I think it's interesting that, you know, we know what we know about all this and we do it all day, every day. It, it's a lot, right? And, um, mm-hmm. that's why we're putting this information out and showing that we don't know everything and there's research to be done for next week. And, um, you know, there's con there's collaboration that needs to be done to figure out more about these features that are being introduced. Yep. Yep. Uh, I have two more we'll cover and then we'll make this uh, an end cap for part one. Uh, trusted launch support for Azure uh, ephemeral OS disk. You know what? At one point in my life, I could have told you what ephemeral meant. I think it means persistent. You guys tell me, but uh, ephemeral, what does this trusted launch support for Azure ephemeral OS disk mean?
2: Oh, my. So I just had um, uh, someone on my team talk to me about ephemeral disk the other day in the context of um, – you know, PVS, and what he told me is ephemeral disks are cheap. um, But I I won't say insecure, but, you know, the whole idea behind a TPM module is just that trusted launch, that trusted platform. In fact, it's required for Windows 11 machines. Uh, I didn't realize it was virtualized, too, so that's neat. But um, I'm going to have to research this a little bit. I just looked up
0: the definition for ephemeral because I always forget it means Mm -hmm. uh, something that lasts for a very short amount of time
2: which is probably why it's cheap. So you could spin this thing up, use it, turn it off and it goes away.
0: Okay. So you don't have to worry about managing this storage. It's gone. Um, And so it's off your, it's off your payroll in a matter of X time.
2: Yeah. In fact, I just noticed that option during machine creation the other day for a uh, windows for an MCS image or uh, catalog. So that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's brand new to the MCS process.
0: All right. Uh, last one, we'll cover support for machine catalog creation from a different Azure subscription. Wow. Uh, Bill. This is kind of interesting. This this is
1: really focused on um, having shared image galleries. So where the customer has created a, a, a bank of images, you know, maybe Windows 10, Windows mm-hmm. 11, maybe certain apps on them, and they've created them in one subscription, and they've built, they've built, they've stood up another subscription in their tenant, and they're, uh, they're leveraging that for a different use case, perhaps, maybe as a security boundary or a governance boundary. Um, mm-hmm. But they want to be able to leverage those, those images that they built over in the other subscription. Historically, they'd have to literally move them manually. Now they apparently have the ability to connect to them, um, primarily from using PowerShell, looks
2: like. This is pretty slick. So in my mm-hmm. head, I'm thinking about how this used to work on-prem. Right? You had a desktop yep. team who was mm-hmm. building laptop images in their own little area. Um, But, you know, you move this to the cloud and you've got desktop teams still creating images, but they're doing it from within Azure, right? So what they would do is to sort of, to your point, Bill, you've got a governance, you've got a security boundary where I'm going to give this team access to a cloud, some space. They're building images, but in order to get those images from one tenant or one subscription to to another, it's a very manual process. Whereas now these guys can kind of build and tweak and do everything they need to and have their own shared image gallery the way they want it. And an administrator in a different subscription could basically just insight into the gallery, pull over what they need. And so it just makes it a little bit clean. So this is a this is a really neat idea. I love this. Yeah. Me too.
0: Yeah. Goes back to our conversation a while ago around those, you know, test environments and yeah. Having that flexibility. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, guys, uh, we're out of time for today. So this was great. Um, we only made it through a third of the content. So chances are there's going to be a, a part three uh, coming after part two, and maybe maybe we'll recap some of the other stuff at that point in time, clarify any, any things that we feel like we missed. Uh, but guys, I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to talking more around this. I can't highlight enough that if it takes us three days, three one-hour sessions to cover what's new with the product, uh, Citrix is clearly uh, investing in this and um, this is where the, the they know their bread is buttered for the future.
2: Man, and what a tease, too, because there are so many good things coming up in the next session. There's some Google, some AWS. We talked about MCIX and app packaging the other day. So uh, this will be pretty good, actually.
0: You got you know, the the Microsoft stuff we just covered public cloud integration with CVAD. We haven't really got into DAS, but we think all this stuff applies there too. And yeah, Microsoft's just one of the three big players in the public mm-hmm. space. And then there's all kinds of semi-private uh, public clouds to be integrated with. It's it is truly a world of um, you know you decide your path. You pick your you pick your story that you want to be, and it's all gonna all gonna work and all gonna be supported. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Good session. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, thanks. We'll do it again next All week. Right. All right, yep.
1: thanks, Mandy.